This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. What's the relationship between school dropout, child marriage, and early pregnancy? Do girls drop out of school because of early marriage or pregnancy? Or is it the reverse? My guest today is Aaron Murphy Graham, who has researched these questions extensively in Honduras. She focuses on the agency of girls in their adolescence and the disconnect between schooling and their futures. They made deliberate rational choices given the constraints that they had in their lives. And sometimes it's hard to um, make the argument that that wasn't the best choice for them at that time. Aaron Murphy Graham is an associate adjunct professor at the Graduate School of Education, UC Berkeley. She's recently published with Alison Cohen and Diana Pacheco Montoya a new article in the Comparative Education Review entitled School Dropout, Child Marriage, and Early Pregnancy Among Adolescent Girls in Rural Honduras. Erin Murphy Graham, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Will. So can you just tell me a little bit about how prevalent child marriage is around the world today? Sure. So estimates suggest that each year, 12 million girls are married before the age of 18. So this means that globally today, there are roughly 650 million women who were married before the age of 18. And I should say that in um, the work on child marriage and in the field of um, advocacy and policymaking and research, child marriage is a term that's used to refer to any formal or informal union. Uh, before the age of 18 for both girls and boys. So we call them child marriages, but in some cases they are um, informal unions. Right. And are there particular areas in the world where child marriage or child informal unions are more prevalent than others? That's a great question. So child marriage is a global phenomenon. It happens uh, in almost every country of the world. But yes, there are definitely regions and countries where it is more prevalent. But what's, I think what's so interesting about child marriage is because it's rooted in gender inequality. So you'll see that um, it happens in any society where girls and women are considered inferior. But often where it is more prevalent, we also have higher rates of poverty. We have higher rates of educational inequality and less access to education. And then also in countries that have cultural norms and cultural practices that support or endorse or even just tolerate really early, early marriage. And then also regions of the world where there are high levels of insecurity and violence. So it it exists worldwide, but it's countries and regions with those kinds of characteristics where we see even higher rates. I would imagine since it happens worldwide that there must be different definitions of what a child is. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on the teen years and younger, but, you know, I mean, that just seems a bit arbitrary, perhaps. You know, so I guess, you know, how, how do different notions and definitions of what it means to be a child sort of impact how we think about child marriage? That's a great question as well. So... Child marriage is used as a term, I think, really to gain um, global awareness of the issue. It's, it's a very attention-grabbing term, but it's true that technically many of the individuals who enter into unions before the age of 18 would 
would be considered adolescence. So if we think of early childhood from birth to age six or seven, and then the middle years of childhood are usually uh, from six or seven to 11, and then early adolescence is 12 to 14, and then adolescent is 15 to 24. Those are the sort of general age ranges that international organizations have come to agree upon. Um, Most individuals who are entering into uh, these marriages would be considered either early adolescence or adolescence. They're not, technically speaking, children. But I think what's important is that we're also guided by the Convention for International Rights of the Child. And in that case, um, it's basically things that are guaranteed to individuals who don't have independent legal status. So anyone under the age of 18 is not considered an adult. And therefore, it's really adults' responsibility, those who are over the age of 18, to help to protect the rights of those who are under the age of 18. And that's where I think um, advocacy work has kind of grasped onto the notion of the child because it really evokes this notion that it's our responsibility to protect those who are technically not, don't have independent legal status. So how, I mean, in some cases, how young are girls getting married? Yeah, so it it does range. Um, You know, you hear sort of anecdotal stories, right, where, you know, um, children will get married as young as age nine. Uh, Sometimes it it, it correlates with when they have their first periods. But I think when you look at demographic health studies, the DHS statistics, which are one of the main sources that we use globally to look at this, we see that they're roughly um, one of the ages that's the most common where this phenomenon is occurring is between 15 and 19 uh, years of age. So um, it happens earlier, but definitely I think some of the most risky ages for the practice are uh, 14, 15 years old. And you know, all these statistics exist and you can look, um, there's a wonderful website called Girls Not Brides, which is an, a sort of international research and advocacy network uh, around the issue of child marriage. And there's a lot of information and statistics around um, what the specific ages are. So why is it risky for children within that age range between 15 and 19, as you said? So that's one of the things we've thought about quite a bit in the research, because I think especially with this idea that what is a child and is 17 old enough to get married, is 16 old enough to get married? Um, And I think that one of the reasons why it's very straightforward to say that this is a problematic practice is because until quite recently, the leading cause of death amongst uh, adolescent girls in this 15 to 19 age range was actually childbearing. So because the body is not physically ready, is not physically mature um, to actually have a child pass through the birth canal, you see high, high rates of um, maternal mortality for adolescent pregnancies. And so part of the reason why there is an effort to end child marriage is because early childbirth is so problematic and so dangerous. So I've often questioned this idea, well, okay, so let's imagine that a girl at age 14 or 15 gets married, but you can prevent pregnancy. Then what's the problem, right? Is the problem pregnancy or is the problem union? And so what research suggests is that early marriages exacerbate the problems of marriage in general. And this is actually work that's come out of a wonderful NGO um, called the Narinter Trust in India. They point out, I think quite brilliantly, that the problems of early marriage are that when in societies where marriages are often unequal, where women don't have equal voice, where women um, often their mobility is restricted, where they may have um, very uh, tight constraints on any kind of decision making or participation outside of the household, 
all of those issues of inequality and male domination and oftentimes violence, those are much worse in instances where girls are quite young. So what we see with these early marriages is that there's higher rates of domestic violence, there's higher rates of um, issues related to girls not being able to continue their schooling. That's a huge issue. We see that once girls are in unions, they no longer continue their studies and that oftentimes they just have to live a very um, secluded life where they're unable to socialize with others their age. Um, they have very heavy domestic responsibilities in terms of household chores. And in some ways their adolescence and their childhood comes to an end. They're asked to take on adult roles when they're still quite young and so they're very vulnerable. And is there typically a large age gap? Yes, that's another great question. So that also varies. Uh, in the world, we see that yes, there is typically an age gap, but that gap is not the same across different uh, countries. So in Latin America, where I do this work, uh, we see a, a gap, but it's not a huge gap. It's usually between four to five years. So like the, the, the woman, the girl would be potentially 15, 16, and then the, the, the man would be about 20? That's right, about 20. That seems quite young as well. Yes, yes. And so often what you'll see is that it's a, an age gap, but not one that is too unsettling in some ways, in, in, in this context at least of Latin America. The anecdotes of men who are much, much older that I think sometimes get media attention. You know, sometimes there's a man who's, you know, 60 or 70 years old who has a, an, a, a teenage bride. That's not really what we saw in the research. We saw that much more common was adolescents dating slightly older adolescents or in, involved in relationships with adolescents who were older than they were, um, but not, not in a way that was particularly noteworthy. And so in, in that research where you've been studying this phenomenon, why are relatively young men and young girls getting married or forming unions? So this is the question that we set out to answer as well. I've been doing research in Honduras and in Latin America for approximately 20 years. And when I began this work, I began with a keen interest in trying to better understand how education could transform gender norms. So looking at when, when adolescents are able to participate in educational settings, does this change the way that they think about gender? Um, in what ways is education empowering? And I also have this keen interest in trying to understand how we can improve the quality of secondary education, particularly in developing country settings. And so I was involved in some work on this very interesting and innovative secondary education program called SAT, which stands for Sistema de Aprendizaje Tutorial. And that, that program is, is an interesting topic in and of itself, which I, I won't go into too much detail about today, but I raise it because it had given me exposure to individuals who are roughly in grades seven through grades 12, that's the US um, equivalent. And so it's what we think of as lower and upper secondary school. And I'd been doing this work and one of the goals of the work was to try to follow a cohort of youth longitudinally as they uh, graduated from primary school and continued on through secondary school. And in doing that work, we uh, followed students, you know, in this seventh grade time period, eighth grade time period. And in, when we looked at the data, um, we were actually shocked to see that roughly 10% of girls, these are rural in rural communities exclusively, but that 10% of girls had dropped out because they'd gotten married. 
And I, I was actually really surprised. I thought, I thought I knew something about this region and I wasn't um, expecting to find such high rates of child marriage. And so it really caused me as a scholar and as a researcher to try to answer this question, why is this happening? And what was so interesting was that I found that we knew a lot about the statistics. So we knew that this was happening, but we didn't know why. Um, and so together in an earlier paper, I worked with purely a qualitative sample where we went to the communities where we were conducting research, identified individuals who had formed early unions and conducted in-depth interviews with them and in-depth interviews with people and their families. And what we found was that um, girls made this decision in the context of a very limited choices. So because they lived in environments where they felt that their future opportunities were somewhat restricted, um, they did not see themselves having uh, the opportunity to say go to the university because they had um, really scarce family resources. They also um, sometimes found school was just not that interesting. But having a boyfriend was interesting. Uh, <laughs> so what this research has really done for me is made me better understand that in doing work on adolescents, you have to bring in an adolescent development lens and understand that there are certain things that are happening during adolescence, one of which is this desire for exploring one's sexuality, for um, forming intimate relationships, for better understanding what does it mean to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. That's a totally normal and healthy part of adolescence. And in the culture of um, rural Honduras, parents really wanted to restrict their girls and their mobility and were afraid that if their children got into a romantic relationship that they would drop out of school. And so it was this really interesting dynamic where girls were exercising agency, um, but that agency was somewhat constrained. And um, it was that early qualitative study that allowed us to better explain that, you know, it was romantic relationships that were driving this. It was the adolescent tendency to want to act in ways that were in opposition to one's parents and they wanted independence. It was this early qualitative work that made us realize we need to do this with a much larger quantitative sample and understand if the trends that we were seeing in the qualitative work were also present um, in, in you know, a cohort where we could look at some of the correlations between um, pregnancy, marriage, and school decisions. And that's in some ways what led to, to this work. So, I mean, it's, it's an amazing study because you, you've looked at uh, a large group of girls over eight years, if I'm correct. And I mean, so, you know, what did you find? Do, do girls drop out of school because of early marriages or are they dropping out and then getting married? Like, can, you know, do we, do we know, can we say anything for sure based on your, your quantitative data? I don't know. Can we ever say anything for sure? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the quantitative data, and, and it was actually, this is actually a really tricky thing to measure. So, and the reason why it's a tricky thing to measure is that this is not a randomized controlled trial where you're sort of, you know, randomly assigning groups to uh, groups of girls to treatment and control. And, and also just the timing of data collection means that um, we, were, we were able to get funding to, to, to do data collection when the girls were in sixth grade. So they were still in primary school and then in their first two years of secondary school. And then we had a funding gap. And so we didn't have data for the intervening years. And then we went back um, 
and did a final round of data when girls should have been approximately 20. So on average, they were about 20 years old. So we had this nice longitudinal panel, but we did not have data at every single year. Um, and that's definitely one of the limitations of the study. But I think these longitudinal adolescent um, studies are so rare. Uh, we have the Young Live study, which is amazing. Um, and so I hope we can have more studies where we have you know, uh, long-term follow-ups of adolescents over um, the period of their uh, transition to adulthood. So in this work, what we had to do was um, use a lot of triangulation. So ask the same question several times, like when, you know, when did you begin cohabitation and when did you drop out of school? And then see if we could kind of calculate the timing. And then we asked about what was the reason for school discontinuation, the sort of top reason why they decided to drop out of school. And then again, did a lot of in-depth interviews. It's really through that combination of data that we are able to say, and, and this confirms our earlier research, that, that most girls had dropped out of school already before they entered into a union or became pregnant. And did that surprise you? Yes and no. So I would say earlier research makes the same um, uh, you know, kind of conclusion in Africa. But I still think that um, because actually in the earlier work, we had interviewed girls who were still in school, ran off with a boy, and it was actually running off with the boy that uh, made them drop out of school, right? So we had found like some more anecdotal uh, stories that suggested that girls were actually dropping out because they got married. But when we looked at the larger data set, we found that the pattern was that girls have dropped out of school and then they really have nothing to do, right? They don't have anywhere to go. And they're just kind of idle in their, in their paternal, maternal households. And so for them, the next logical step is to get married. It's like, what do I do when I've dropped out of school? I, I have, and this is, what's my life? Okay, my life is now I become a housewife and a mom. And that was a fairly traditional, um, like we didn't see in those instances that girls were trying to, you know, transform gender norms or really just like be at home and be independent. It was like when they had dropped out of school to them, the next logical step in life was um, to become a, 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 a wife and to become a mom. And so it still begs the question of why are girls dropping out in rural Honduras? Yeah. And I think that that is something that we really need to address, particularly now with the COVID crisis. So dropout is an is a huge issue. It has been a huge issue for quite some time in upper secondary. And the international community has committed to try to improve the quality of education and to try to ensure that all adolescents have access to schooling up through primary and secondary grades. But what we have seen in Latin America is that even though there is access to education, adolescents don't necessarily stay in secondary school. So there have been a few studies recently that point to the notion of opting out of school. And opting out of school builds on earlier theoretical frameworks um, that Rumberger has proposed on, on studies about dropout that understand it as this confluence of factors that include being pushed out of school, um, and that might be sort of policies or harassment 
or even potentially low grades that some would push a student out. Then there's also these pull factors that would pull a student out of school. So for girls, one factor would actually be a boy. Like if there's a boy that's saying, come run off with me, um, they, that boy would pull her out of school. Or her parents could pull her out to say, I need you to stay home and take care of your younger siblings. For males, it's often work opportunities that pull them out of school. But in Latin America, we're seeing lots of dropout due to opting out, which is basically that it's not really a push or a pull or the combination of the two, but just really this um, consensus that schooling is not going to be of benefit to them in their lives, that they're not going to have meaningful work opportunities, they're not going to have meaningful opportunities for uh, really engagement in either the labor force or higher education. They're going to be in their communities as farmers or as housewives. They just don't see another uh, future. And so they think, why am I doing this? Why is this relevant and how will it improve my life? And I'd kind of just rather not do this, like not wake up early, not put on my uniform, not you know do whatever it may be. And so they opt out. And so, so we found some of that uh, as well in, in trying to understand why girls were, were um, dropping out of school. But this is something that's so important because the statistics project a very high level of dropout because of COVID, right? So the idea is that once COVID ends, kids will never return to school. And so understanding the factors um, that lead to their dropout prior to COVID, I think can help inform policies also post COVID to make sure to get kids back into school. So it seems like a conclusion or, you know, a potential insight here would be that to keep girls from getting married early and getting pregnant early, we have to find ways of keeping them in school that they already are enrolled in and figuring out ways to connect the schooling that they're in to some meaningful future that they envision themselves participating in, be it a job, be it whatever it is, higher education. But that that seems to be the crux of the issue then. So it's a, it's a focus on what is the connection between schooling and one's future in rural communities. That seems to be the crux of the issue. I, I totally agree with that um, conclusion. And I think that it, it does really raise issues because you know, schooling has traditionally been seen as a protective factor for youth in general. Like if they're in school, this will protect them from harm that might come of them if they're not in school. So definitely the discourse around child marriage is keep girls in school and all will be well, right? So if we keep them in school and we keep them there till they're, you know, 18 years old, they'll learn what they need to learn and it will also protect them from entering into unions or, you know, getting pregnant and things of that nature. So that, I think that really is the question. How do we keep girls in school? But there are more questions about this because part of it is, you know, let's imagine, and we had cases like this that came out through the qualitative work that sometimes girls were in their final years of high school. Maybe they were 17 turning 18 um, and they wound up actually in these unions, but it was a, a much more deliberate choice, right? So girls had, before deciding to, to move in with their boyfriends, said, I want to stay in school. Um, will you support me in my studies? And in a few cases, it was, yes, I will. And so the girls entered into the union with someone that they were in love with. They were supported to finish their schooling. So I think that there's, the idea is, yes, stay in school, but also we have to work on changing some of the norms that we already see happening, actually, if we dig deep enough in Honduras, that are um, there's a strong idea that once you enter into a union or you become a mom, you're done with your schooling. 
And so there's been work to like sort of suggest that pregnant girls and girls with children can go back to school. But the norm is actually even stronger that married girls don't go back to school. So we have to also work on changing those norms so that even if girls do um, drop out of school, that they can go back or they don't have to drop out at all, they can stay enrolled. That's one big issue. And then I, I do think it's the question of how do we have schools be places that are offering, there's this idea in adolescent development that we need to have competing joy, right? So joy is something that adolescents experience through, through in their lives, but schools need to be places that compete with the joy that um, girls might get through playing, you know, playing outside of the household, playing sports or playing with their friends or, you know, that I think that basically, and, and I, I will say, you know, during this time of COVID, when my, my kids have been schooling from home, they keep saying, this isn't fun. This isn't fun. <laughs> I say, well, school's not always fun. But I do think that in addition to the academic content that we want kids to learn in school, they need to be places that kids have fun in, right? They, they need to be places, they need to play, and they need to, uh, you know, really compete with the joy that, that girls might get through these adam the adolescent um, intimate relationships. And, um, and so I think, yes, we need to think about how to make schools more attractive, how to make schools places kids don't want to drop out of. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that, that we can't expect schools to solve these issues either, right? So that's putting a lot on schools. Like, okay, now we need to do this and this and this and this and this. So this is definitely something where an intersectoral approach is going to be very, very important. I mean, so in Honduras, how many years of schooling are constitutionally guaranteed? Nine. Right. So, I mean, we're talking about levels of schooling if, if they're dropping out at 16, 17, I mean, they would be past ninth grade. Is that right? That's right. That's where it got hard for me to think like, why is this wrong? You know, why is it, or why is it not even wrong, but why is the, is this a Western lens really was my, my main concern. Like, is this lens on child marriage, something that has come from a Western gaze saying, oh no, no, we don't do that. And so that's not good because to me, it was actually, especially when you get to understand the thought process and you interview these um, older adolescents about their choices, they made deliberate rational choices given the constraints that they had in their lives. And sometimes it's hard to um, make the argument that that wasn't the best choice for them at that time. Um, you know, so girls who are 16, 17 years old, again, especially if they're able to prevent pregnancy and they're able to genuinely do family planning, right? So plan together with their partner. When are we ready to have a child? Then it, it does, I think, become much more slippery to say that there's something problematic about this practice. So I think that, you know, again, I focus less on the age, but I understand for the purposes of international advocacy why there is still a focus on age 18. But I do think it's much more complicated. And I think that we have to, you know, really listen to youth and listen to and, and I think the goal is that we don't just prevent marriage um, that's not the goal of these policies but it's actually on improving gender equality within marriage so the work that we have been doing is emphasizing what we need are relationships where um, equality is one of the characteristics of the relationship so how do schools and comprehensive sexuality education programs, how do they prepare both boys and girls to understand what an equitable relationship looks like? 
What's consultation in the context of a relationship? Um, how, do, how does one make sacrifices for the other person in the relationship? So, so the, the work is really about not preventing something, but actually promoting something. Uh, so, so it's really trying to get out of this discourse of don't do that, but what is it that we aspire to? And we aspire to live in a world where we can transform gender inequality and have societies that are characterized by equitable gender relations. And marriage is so important in that. And so that's, that's really, I think, where this work needs to go. And so does that work, a lot of that work must then focus on the young men who are getting married. Yes, I think that's a huge piece of this, Will. So thanks so much for bringing it up. I think one of the other really frustrating things is that this discourse is so focused on girls. You know, we talk about girls' pregnancy, adolescent girls' pregnancy, but someone's getting them pregnant. Why aren't we talking about (laughs) the impregnators, right? (laughs) (laughs) So yes, I think another huge tendency, um, and I think direction the work is going in is recognizing that we cannot address this issue without addressing notions of masculinity. And without trying to change the way that boys think about themselves and their roles and uh, are also committed to promoting gender equality in their lives and through through their families. Well, Aaron Murphy-Graham, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk today. Thank you so much, Will. It's a pleasure to be with you. Aaron Murphy-Graham is an associate adjunct professor at the Graduate School of Education at UC Berkeley. Her latest co-written article appears in the Comparative Education Review. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushi Guaba, Fatih Aktas, and Ing Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brent, and I'll be back next week.